This is 105.9 The Region. There are so many ways of communicating these days, but nothing seems to beat the one-on-one. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Welcome to In Conversation. Thank you for being with us. This show is, in my view, up front, up close, and heavenly. On February 18, 2012, Toronto Archbishop Thomas Christopher Collins became Thomas Cardinal Collins, just the 16th Canadian bishop to be elevated into the College of Cardinals and the first ever born and raised in Guelph, Ontario. His steady and earnest path through the Catholic Church officially started with his ordination to the priesthood in the early 70s, but his lifelong journey to and with God may very well have begun at the Church of Our Lady in Guelph where he was an altar boy, highly educated, deeply devoted, connected to and respected by millions of faithful around the world, Thomas Cardinal Collins remains a humble and holy man, passionately persuasive from the pulpit, and has the courage of his convictions in everything he does. And he also tells a great story. Please welcome Thomas Cardinal Collins to In Conversation. Thank you for joining us, Your Eminence. Well, it's just great to be here, Anne. As a young man, you had many career paths in front of you. Your father, your uncle, they both worked for a newspaper in Guelph. Law seemed to appeal to you as well. Why the priesthood? Why the priesthood? Well, as you say, I did think of uh, other possible ways of life, but very early on, I, uh, I really thought I wanted to be a priest. It was largely the example of the priests who served in my parish, uh, several of the older ones, but also any one in particular, uh, one who was somewhat younger, Father John Newstead. And uh, he really inspired me because he uh, was very joyful. And he was very dedicated. Every afternoon he went to the hospital to visit the sick because when he was young, he had been very sick and he felt a bit lonely. And so uh, he visited them every single day. And as a teenager, I thought, wow, that's impressive. You know, I, every single day to do something. So I thought, I think God may be calling me to imitate uh, these great priests. And uh, so it's through them that I began to think about the priesthood. And what did your parents think and, and your sisters when you told them that this was going to be the path that you had chosen to take? Well, I think they were, uh, they were certainly they were very supportive. Uh, I don't know whether they were surprised or not. I really don't know. But uh, when I had actually uh, thought, thought of the, the time had come to take that path, I, um, you know, I, I told them, and they were always they've always been very supportive of that. Um, and so I was very happy to uh, you know, let them know that's what I wanted to do. And they, I think they, whatever I felt I I was being called by God to do, I know they would always support me. You are still a studious man, but a very studious young man. I understand that one year, I believe it was 1973, you actually earned not one but two degrees in the same year. How did you do that? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm kind of one of these rather organized people. And uh, when I was uh, at university, I went to St. Jerome's. I did a basically like an honors English degree with some philosophy as well. Uh, for my BA, then I went to the to the seminary in London where you studied to be a priest, and I was there about four years. And I, I asked the authorities there if I could also do an MA in English at Western, and they said, "Well, as long as it doesn't affect your marks and doesn't affect your studies, uh, sure." 
they said they'd give it a try. So um, I, while I was doing my bachelor's degree, we now call it a Master Divinity, uh, to prepare for the priesthood, I was also doing an MA in English. Um, so I just, uh, I found that very helpful. I, I, I never handed in one essay for both courses. I always did separate essays. <laughs> but the, uh, the studying of, especially old English literature, that was like my passion. That, that's very connected into the study of theology. It's very uh, beautifully connected. So I, I just found it was very, uh, very good, a fruitful way to spend one's time. Sounds like a joyful experience as well as a lot of hard work. When students are in university or college, typically they, we, seek out part-time jobs in order to, you know, have a little extra spending money, make ends meet, contribute to the cost of higher education. Did you have odd jobs while you were going to university? Well, when I was, my first odd job was uh, in Guelph. I was at the Frontier Restaurant. I was a takeout uh, waiter. Uh, now, we didn't uh, do it on uh, um, rollerblades. So, but, you know, they you always have to do with these kind of going out to cars. And, well, we just walked out. But you clip the kind of like a uh, like a platter onto the side of the car. This was a long time ago. Uh, what happened? I think it would have been when I was in late high school. Uh, that was my first job. And then, of course, I, I was a paper boy. I took the paper of the Golden Mail. And that's where, as a teenager, I really got to like early mornings. I mean, most uh, uh, teenagers don't, but I, I got to like, I had to have all my papers delivered by about uh, 6.30, wow. so I got to really like getting up early in the morning. <laughs> and then I also had a couple of summers, uh, I, I was working as a, uh, as a, like a, a kind of an orderly in the old people's home, and I also, my main summer job though when I was at university uh, was at the fiberglass. So I worked in the roving uh, department. Uh, at the fiberglass factory. Uh, so that was, so, you know, these different jobs I took to uh, uh, during the summer. Then when I got to be a seminarian, we had, as the bishop had a rule, that the seminarians had to go to Camp Rabat, which is a boys' camp, uh, and help out during the summer. So you couldn't very well get a summer job and then take two weeks off and go back again. So I got a job uh, cutting the grass in the cemetery. So while I was uh, studying for the, in the seminary, I was cutting grass in the cemetery during the summer. Wow. It kind of rhymes. It yeah, it does. It really does. You're a poet, and you do know it. <laughs> <laughs> I was involved in grave undertakings. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you see, I said, you you always tell a great story, and I'm going to jump ahead on my in my notes and, and do this. You are quoted as saying, and let me get this right here. So if I may quote it, the call from God comes deep from the heart. The call to be a bishop comes by telephone. I got the call to be a cardinal over a BlackBerry. Well, it's not quite a BlackBerry. I, I, I did have a... Oh, I know, I guess I did. I just trying to think about that. I was down in Washington, it would be 2012, um, and I was, at, I was working on a translation committee for texts that are used in worship, you know. I'm, I was on that committee. And I think, actually, the way I got it was I went back to my hotel room and I saw the light flashing on the phone. So I saw that I had a message, and I called the, uh, in return the call, it was from the nuncio, who was sort of the Pope's representative, actually was his assistant. And uh, I said, yes, do you want to have something I should call you about? He said, oh, yes, well, tomorrow morning at uh, 6 o'clock in the morning, Toronto time, the Pope is going to make you a cardinal. <gasps> and I said, oh, <laughs> Washington. Um, so I said, well, can I tell anyone? He said, well, no, this is a great secret. 
So I said, okay, well, fine, I'll do what I can. But I immediately tried to figure out getting a, getting a flight back to Toronto. So I left a little note to the people on the committee. Sorry, got to go. See you later. <laughs> I'd head it off to the airport. Bye for now. <laughs> so That's about it. How does one get into the queue to be noticed by the Pope to be elevated to the College of Cardinals? How did you become a cardinal? I really have no idea. Um, I think it's sort of a different, I think what happens is, uh, there is a process for obviously for preparing people to be priests. That's where you actually ask to, to enter the seminary. It is a very beautiful process. I've, you know, I've ordained eight priests last year. I got two more coming up and one a bit later this year, about three this year. So we go through that whole process for being a bishop. There's also a very thorough process, a lot of consultation. So I got named as Bishop of St. Paul out in Alberta, then Edmonton, I got moved there, and then eventually to Toronto. But I don't think there's a process for being chosen as a cardinal. It's purely a personal decision of the Pope. Frequently, um, uh, the Archbishop of Toronto, since it's a big diocese, would be a cardinal. But I was, uh, I became Archbishop of Toronto in 2007, and uh, it was about five years before the Pope named me a cardinal. So, and nowadays, Pope Francis seems to pick people from all kinds of places. So it's purely a personal decision of the Pope, and I have no idea how it's made. When we come back, the Pope, the pandemic, and keeping the faith. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Is there someone you want to learn more about? Drop us a line. Info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer will be right back on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to In Conversation with Ann Romer on 1059 The Region. Welcome back. We are in conversation with Thomas Cardinal Collins. So let's talk about Pope Francis right now. What is your role when it comes to communicating with the current Pope. How close are you to him? Well, not, not, not too much. First of all, these days, we can't get over our own very much with the flights and everything. But um, I, I met him uh, during, the, during the conclave, although he had actually, I had contact with him a bit before. When he was the Archbishop of Buenos Aires, somebody, one of his parishioners had moved to Toronto and had died and had willed some land, I think it was, to back to his own home diocese in Argentina. So I got a letter from Cardinal Bergoglio uh, saying, could you get us a lawyer in Toronto who could work out the, the you know, legalities of this, this inheritance? So I did. I got our lawyers to do it, and they took care of it, and I forgot about it. And then when I was uh, in the, uh, the conclave, and there he was, and he got elected pope. So I got in line at Cardinals at the end. There he was. He changed into his white robes, and we were all going up. Congratulations, Holy Father. You know, on behalf of the half of Toronto and the people in my diocese, my prayers are with you as you begin your new work. And he said, thank you. Pray for me. And thank you for the lawyer. <laughs> I thought, oh, okay. What do you know? Who knew? <laughs> he remembered. <laughs> and, and he's a real guy. You know that there's we, we, we just don't think of of the Pope as a as a normal human being, but it sounds like he really is. <laughs> yeah, no, he's that was the only other time I'd ever had. A, I didn't know I'd never met him before. You know, and 
and that was the only sort of contact I'd <laughs> had with him. So he remembered. I think that's so. Funny. That was, I guess, it's like Canada. Oh yeah, there's that guy. He's a little wilderness of money. Oh, this must be the bishop from there. <laughs> so, as a cardinal and and one that is you know full of of vim and vigor, that would be you, and obviously a pope who is is more liberal minded, I think, than we've seen in popes in the past or seen of popes in the past. What does he? In your communication, not face to face, of course, right now, but does he ask for your advice and, and other cardinals as well? Well, I think the cardinals whose advice he asks are the ones that are in Rome. There are about 226 cardinals altogether, about 120 are under 80. Uh, so, so, over 100 that are over 80. If you want to get along, like, you know. no, but anyway, 120 are over are under 80. Uh, and they can vote. They can vote for Pope. And of those cardinals who basically are actively running dioceses and doing things like that, many of them anyway, um, only about 20 of them are actually in Rome. Uh, and so uh, they would be the ones he would meet mostly. The rest of us, he really, we don't really um, get to see him very much. Um, and we're running our diocese. And my main role is not to be a cardinal. My main role is to be the, uh, the the Archbishop of Toronto, and that's my you might see my day job. <laughs> that, the cardinal thing is just is another thing. So let's look at then your work in Toronto. I know that you opened and founded the Office for Refugees. That's a very important mission for you, isn't it? Yes, very very important. Uh, and uh, the Office of Refugees Archdiocese of Toronto which actually is O-R-E-T, which is uh, the Latin for he prays or she prays. But uh, the Office of Refugees has been there many, many years, of course, but I try to put as much emphasis on it as possible. We have uh, Deacon Rudy Ochak, a wonderful, wonderful leader of that office, and many other of his colleagues working in it, uh, a good number of whom have themselves been refugees and who know what it's like. Uh, it's a tragedy uh, that so many people have driven out of their homelands and so we try to help them in every way we can. And we have a very good, uh, uh, I guess you say, track record in that, because what when they come to here, when we go through a long, 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 long process of getting, you know, they come into Canada, we greet them at the airport when we could do that. Um, and then there are parish communities and groups that reach out to them, help them, uh, get them settled, help take them to you know, medical things and language classes and so on. So we have a community that helps care for the refugees, and each, and we've had many, many. Uh, and so very soon, and I don't think we've had many more than about a few months, they have a job, they're, ready to, they're self-supporting. So we, we promised to support them for a whole year, but I don't think we've ever really had to do that because they're off and running by the time a few months are up. That's brilliant. Fast forward now into this time in history, one of the darkest times in in modern history, the pandemic. Cardinal, does it ever make you wonder or question God when you see what is happening around the world and the misery and the suffering? Oh, no, uh, not at all. I mean, this is part of our, we're on a planet in which uh, as uh, the thing I studied when I did my doctorate in Rome, uh, the book of Revelation and the Apocalypse, speaks of the four horsemen of the Apocalypse, so war, civil strife, famine, and plague. Uh, and if you, you, know, you look down through history, I don't think there's been a time we haven't had this, 
Well, it just the last one was 1918, which is none of us were around for. But my mother was, and she remember her telling me about gathering on the the like the grounds around the church as the priest was inside celebrating mass, and people were getting sick. And it's part of the it's a part of the, the the cross. I mean, this is our the whole thing of God came into this world, you know, and even accepting death, death on a cross, and. And so that uh, reality reminds us that uh, this isn't our home. We're just passing through. This is a valley of tears. And uh, this, if anyone thinks that this world is all there is, then it must be, uh, I don't know what to make of that. But that's not our Christian faith. So in other words, it for for many, for the faithful, for so many people, this is a way to cement their their commitment to their faith, to their God, to God, to their journey. Well, I think in many ways it is. Uh, first of all, it could help them, the isolation we have because of this, uh, you know, a lot of restrictions and stuff, can either make you angry and say, why, why, you know, or it can make one try to go deeper and say, how can I look at what's really important in life and in you know, what I'm doing. The other thing is, too, that many people around us are suffering very much. They're very lonely. They're very isolated. And so this is a challenge for us, not to be so self-absorbed, but to reach out and show love. It's in the midst of the darkest darkness that the light shines most brightly. In the gospel, we often see Christ coming through the storm. Uh, and that's the most important thing. The reason... Uh, why we are Christians is basically to reach out in this valley of tears. We're not in the heavenly Jerusalem yet. We're on our way. But it gives us a challenge occasion to reach out on love and compassion. It also reminds us that life is short. Sometimes, you know, we've got, uh, we can flick on the lights. We can turn, you know, the car moves forward, the TV turns on, all this stuff. And we think, well, we're just, uh, we're just humming along. You know, it's going to go on forever. But no, uh, this life is very short. And I think um, there's a saying, a somewhat different context, by Sam Johnson, a great writer, 19th century. When a man knows he's going to be hanged in a couple of weeks, it concentrates the mind wonderfully. And I think we need to have, for many reasons, concentrated minds. It shouldn't take suffering to make that happen. But it does have a, a possibility if we approach it the right way of looking at what is really important. You know, you often see no one ever wished on a deathbed that they spent more time at the office. Yeah, yep, yep, you make perfect sense. You are devoted to your flock, if you will. You are the Archbishop of Toronto. You have so many uh, responsibilities as that and also as a cardinal. How do you separate the work life the religious life from the downtime? How do you allow yourself and what do you do in order to, to, to chill out, but also to reinvigorate, to keep on going with this positive attitude that you, you have? Well, by nature, I'm an introvert. That's my kind of natural personality, although I have to I end up speaking in front of thousands of people and feeding people the doors of churches and all that. But I find uh, regeneration and peace in the quiet. All my life, ever since I was a little boy, I have read. I read, read, read. Right now I'm in my uh, my little uh, room off the side of my, my bedroom in the, the rectory where I live. 
uh, and it's a little chapel, a little prayer place, and all one wall is all books, books, books. So I love to read, and I also think it's important, uh, obviously, in this life, the faster the wheel is spinning, the more the hub has to be secure. And so I try to follow the example of Bishop Shane. He says, spend one hour in adoration every day before our Lord and the Blessed Sacrament. And I think that kind of uh, center is really important, especially if you're very, very busy. But um, but I like to read, and I, I read uh, right now. I am reading uh, when I I'm reading a very detailed philosophical text that I I need to write a foreword for. So that's heavy duty. You got to really figure your way through it. You know, cup of coffee, no decaf, you know, pencil in hand, the whole bit. Uh, so it's really it's very beautiful, but it's quite challenging. And when I want to break from that, right now I'm reading uh, the Nero Wolf stories. I love detective stories. So Rex Stout, great stuff. And it's not so much figuring out who did it although it is kind of clever. Uh, but it's more uh, the atmosphere. And it just Nero Wolf, he's a big detective in uh, New York in the 1930s or 40s or so, and he has this brownstone kind of townhouse and Archie Goodwin is assistant and Theodore, who takes care of the orchids on the roof, is a hobby and so on. And, um, you know, so, I mean, I, I like that. I also like the Agatha Christie stories, Lord Peter Whimsey, uh, Father Brown, uh, I like the Brother Cadfield stories uh, and uh, lots of those things. So I read detective stories and also history. I love history and biography. So that's how I relax. You're just like the rest of us. And, you know, I put you on a pedestal. <laughs> I put you high up in a pulpit, as many people do, because you are a cardinal. You are an archbishop. So may I ask you a very personal question? Through this pandemic, so many of us are isolated. I live alone. I believe you live alone. Are you ever lonely? Uh, no. I, I, uh, I guess there's a difference between being living alone and being lonely. In my particular case, I live in a community of priests. So I actually do. I have a, an apartment in the rectory here. Uh, which is for the cathedral, right, right beside the St. Michael's Cathedral. Uh, and so we have a little community. We're sort of an enclosed community of about nine priests. We all live together here. Um, but I, uh, when I was in Edmonton, I lived alone in a, in a house out there. Uh, no, I don't, I don't feel lonely. I, I'm in, I know uh, many people do. It's, it's, it's a difficulty and a struggle. But I think if one can reach out and be engaged and... Uh, Try to in the work one does, uh, and um, in the life of prayer, reading, and and uh, caring for others, um, and I, I always try to keep in touch. I keep in touch with my sister. Every when technology helps, you know, it's, <laughs> she lives alone in uh, in Guelph, and we we Skype back and forth every day, and um, so I think that kind of thing is important, and uh, in, uh, in order not to be to be alone but not lonely. You can be one can be lonely with a lot of people around. One can be not lonely without a lot of people. It all depends on how you approach it. Where can, because of the pandemic and with the help of technology, where can the faithful see and hear you these days, Cardinal Collins? <laughs> well, I don't, I, I don't know whether they need to, they need to hear and see me. It'd be more <laughs> to follow the Lord, but but I do um, for a period of time. Uh, from March, when we first had to close the churches because of the restrictions, so we've gotten them open two times now. I hope we can do it again as soon as possible. 
But uh, for that time, we, we continue doing this live streaming. And for, I would say, I don't know, about six or seven months, every single day, uh, I was uh, celebrating the Mass and preaching in the cathedral. And I still do that a lot. But we have uh, wonderful priests here. Uh, and so what I do now is I generally uh, celebrate Mass uh, and preach in the cathedral. And it's live stream again. Sundays you get the 10, 15,000, we got about 26, 7,000 on Good Friday and Easter. Uh, I do it usually Sunday and Monday, Thursday and Friday. This, Sun, this Thursday I have another time place I have to do another Mass. So generally four times a week I do this. But also there's a thing, a tradition called Lectio Divina or Divine Reading. And the first Sunday of every month, unless it's like Labor Day or something, and then we just shift it once a day. I do a thing in the evening. Um, and it's also live streamed. It's also on Salt and Light called Lexia Divina. So I do that once a month. Wow. Thomas Cardinal Collins, I have to thank you so much for sharing with us some pretty precious moments in your life and some memories. And may I add, the future is yours. Thank you for joining us in <laughs> conversation. <laughs> and I love that laugh. Well, thanks, thank you. <laughs> thanks so much. It's a great pleasure. What an extraordinary man, yet so down to earth. I've got to say, he left me feeling hopeful. Cardinal Collins, thank you. Mm, my Lord, I really want to see you. Follow In Conversation with Ann Romer on Twitter at 1059 The Region. This is 1059 The Region.